to answer your question around what I love about programmatic, I think it it gives those um, who have, I guess, the aptitude to lean in, the ability to extract a lot of value. From from an advertiser point of view, I think you've had that old adage that you know ad buyers have always said, we know that 50% of our marketing dollars work. We just don't know what 50%. Programmatic was was the key to really unlock that for the very first time. I do think that you have a responsibility to yourself and your career to try and invest in understanding how the industry works. Hello and welcome to the AdPod. Today I'm joined by Paul Gubbins and we'll be talking about programmatic sales. Programmatic has a mixed reception in digital advertising. Some love it, some hate it. One of those who certainly loves it is Paul Gubbins, or as most people call him, Gubbins. As Gubbins has spent so much time educating others on programmatic, and I really wanted to dig into that. So today we discuss the evolution of programmatic, how to educate in programmatic, particularly on complex topics, and what the future of programmatic holds. I always enjoy chatting with Paul, and I hope you enjoy this chat. If you do, then please click like and subscribe. Anyway, all that leaves me to say is, I hope you enjoy this episode of The Ad Pod. Hi, Paul. Welcome to The Ad Pod. How are you doing? Uh, good, thanks, Wayne. Thank you for having me. No, great to have you on. Great to have you on. I think you are the guest that we have on where people probably know you already and they don't need much of an introduction. But for those listening who might not know you, do you mind giving us a quick intro to your career and then what you do now? Absolutely. Um, so I've been working in advertising sales in some capacity, probably for the last 15 or 16 years. I started very much um, via the traditional route, working in classified ad sales for niche titles such as Classic Tractor Magazine. Um, and then, is, that, is that still going? Absolutely. absolutely. It's, still, it's, it's actually one of the biggest uh, agricultural titles in the UK. Um, so I love spotting it every time I walk into my local WH Smith. So I, I move <laughs> the newsstand around and make sure that it's got a prime position. <laughs> um, but, but from titles like that, I then worked my way up into consumer magazines. From consumer magazines, I went into regional press. From regional press, I went into national press. So titles like the Daily Telegraph, the Independent, um, City AM, um, and then from press, I went into digital ad sales. So I spent a number of years at Thomson Reuters selling their digital properties. Um, from Reuters, I went into uh, several ad networks. And then from those ad networks, that's where I really then transitioned into more programmatic sales roles around 2009, um, working for a number of different DSPs, ad exchanges, SSPs, always selling into publishers, agencies or brands directly um fast forward to where we are today um just over three years ago i joined a small us startup called publica um publica is a ctv ad server i launched their european office um and i spent a, a lot of time trying to educate streaming services tv manufacturers and the wider market about the need for ad serving technology that had been built from the ground up around the nuances of streaming. Um, Publica was subsequently acquired by Integral Ad Science just over two years ago, the measurement and optimization um, company. And I'm now VP strategy of Publica by IS. Awesome. 
Well, today we're talking about sort of programmatic sales, and we definitely have the right person to talk to about that. But before we do, one of the things that we're asking our guests this year to do at the start is to share an interesting fact about themselves so that our guests, our listeners can get to know our guests a bit better. So do you mind sharing something which maybe not everyone knows about you? <laughs> okay. Um, I've been playing the guitar for probably about 16 years. And I can still only muster up half of Wonderwall. So I've, I've convinced myself that one day I will learn to play the guitar properly. But um, I call myself a guitar player, but I'm not really. I can I can barely just about entertain somebody at a barbecue with several chords of Wonderwall. <laughs> I love that. I, I love that. I can just about play My Girl. It's actually quite hard. But it's, <laughs> How did I not know this about you? I know, I know. I, I used to play guitar to quite a good level when I was young, but then picking it back up when you're older is really hard. I think my my hands are just way less nimble than they used to be. <laughs> here we are. Yeah, I, I hear you, buddy. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, we'll get into the meat of the conversation. What we tend to like to do on the podcast is start with definitions, just so that everyone's on the same page. And today we're obviously talking about programmatic selling. How do you define programmatic? Uh, my personal interpretation of programmatic is the application of data and technology to buy and sell digital advertising space. There we go. That is uh, it. That's obviously, I, obviously, I know it's a lot more complex than that, but <laughs> if I was trying to explain it to my buddies, you know, that that's effectively what I would say. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's making the buying and selling of digital ad space a lot more transparent, a lot more efficient. Um, it automates some of the manual processes, and it's, uh, it's bringing a lot of efficiencies to those on both the buy and sell sides. Yeah, it's so funny how the the term programmatic has just get misused, but that, that definition is perfect. And you know, in your intro, you spoke around how you sort of started in um, sort of classified ads, regional press, then digital, then programmatic. Kind of what was it that led you into programmatic? Like, how did you do it? Why did you do it? Uh, completely by accident. Um, I, I had no idea what programmatic was, so I was working for one of the biggest. Um, ad networks in the UK, a company called Unanimous. Um, lots of fantastic um, people have, you know, worked at Unanimous and gone on to great roles at AppNexus, started their own companies. So it was a really great place to be at that particular point in time. And their CFO was a chap called Alex Rahman. And uh, he pulled me aside one day and said, look, Paul, I, I think I'm going to go and launch a mobile DSP. I was like, okay, Alex, um, I've got no idea what a mobile DSP is, but you're our CFO. I know you're one of the smartest people in this company. I'm going to probably take a chance and come and, and come and hang out with you and and figure out what this company is that you're going to build and uh, hopefully try and be a part of its successful growth. Um, so we both left unanimous. Um, we raised a bunch of funding. We had a tiny office just off Charlotte Street. And it was at a point in time, 2009, 2010, when digital programmatic was really taking off. You had the likes of app nexus they were really you know making great waves within the agency groups and publishers trying to educate the market around the efficiencies of automated trading but mobile was still an environment that yet that had yet to be kind of positively disrupted by programmatic and you still had a lot of ad networks a lot of mediation companies um a lot of um agencies asking for increased transparency a lot of publishers asking for increased yield and visibility around what's happening on the buy side so alex myself um a chap called mike dewhurst who was our cto at the time tried to look at 
the ad network ecosystem from a mobile point of view and figure out how we could apply all the efficiencies that seem to be um, getting great adoption in a digital programmatic ecosystem and apply them to the mobile space. And StrikeAd, which was the company, effectively became one of the most successful mobile DSPs of its day. Um, we were licensed by, I think, the majority of the holding co's, but we were super, super early. Um, this was a point in time when mobile was seen as a point solution. You couldn't really transact mobile in a programmatic way, app-based programmatic, in any of the big digital um, DSPs, even the big yield optimization platforms that effectively then went on to become the first SSPs couldn't really manage mobile properly because the app ecosystem was still pretty new. Um, the way you tracked, the way you measured, the way you optimized, the way you had to have SDKs implemented, it was all very different. So we realized if you built a DSP around this growing ecosystem, um, it would give the agencies the controls and transparencies that they wanted. And it would give all of these app developers that were launching apps on a daily basis a great way to extract demand from the buy side because they didn't have sales teams. So that that's effectively how I fell into programmatic. I knew absolutely nothing about it. I was just very, very lucky to uh, to go with Alex and, you know, really help educate a market around the benefits of mobile programmatic at a point in time when there was huge positive momentum around programmatic in general, because companies like AppNexus were really breaking new grounds, you know, in the markets and, and they, they were doing this at the, at the global level. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like the, the tide was shifting at that point, like there was this momentum behind it. And then, you know, I remember going to some of the early ATS events and yeah. like reading all the early articles and yeah. I'd see your name and you'd be really championing programmatic and it almost like developed this love for it. And I was always yeah. kind of interested, like, <laughs> what is it you love about programmatic? Because it, it's one of those things where it does get a lot of naysayers, <laughs> you know, it, people are like, it, it they'll, does. Come, they'll come at you on Twitter or me at Twitter or LinkedIn or something. You're <laughs> like, but I love it. So why don't you? So I'm yeah, interested in your perspective. Well, that, that's all I've ever really tried to do, right? I mean, people always ask, Paul, why do you why do you post so much on LinkedIn and Twitter? And you know, you're always posting stuff. That that really evolved because when I was at Strikeout, I was trying to grow a market in the UK, right? The the holding codes didn't have heads of programmatic, you know, the trading desks didn't exist at that point in time. So everything that I was trying to push out was really to educate those on both the buy and sell sides. So they'd lean more into programmatic and not, you know continue to transact via ios we were there to disrupt that model and say look you can still have a direct line of sight with the publisher but there's there's a much more efficient way to be buying mobile in-app inventory so i was trying to put out a lot of explainers at that point in time and that, that's why that cadence of regular posts still exists to this day because I'm, I'm trying to educate the market now less so about mobile but another app-based environment which is ctv um but to answer your question around what i love about programmatic i think it it gives those um, who have, I guess, the aptitude to lean in, the ability to extract a lot of value. So if we just look at what it means to businesses, let's let's look at some of our local homegrown entrepreneurs. When we were starting StrikeAd, we shared a very tiny office, again, just off Charlotte Street, with the MIQ founders. Um, so two or three of them. And, you know, this wasn't that long ago. We're talking 2010. Recently, their company's been valued at over a billion dollars. And that's because they came in using technology that was available to other people, overlaid some proprietary insights, and really illustrated to those on both the buy and sell sides the value that can be extracted from programmatic when applied properly. And that, that's what I love. It's creating a lot of business opportunities for people that have been really brave enough to go out there and start their own companies. 
from from an advertiser point of view, I think you've had that old adage that, you know, ad buyers have always said, we know that 50% of our marketing dollars work, we just don't know what 50%. Programmatic was, was the key to really unlock that for the very first time for those on the buy side. Equally so for publishers. Publishers, you know, are always looking for incremental yield, incremental demand, trying to inform lead strategies, trying to inform their sellers um, to go out and, you know, build their overall revenues and programmatic really empowered lots of publishers from day one, companies like the Rubicon Project, Magnite, um, some of these early players in the SSP space, you know, really transformed the way that publishers could build um, their content, could keep their content free for everybody to consume. But again, Programmatic was really responsible for empowering, empowering lots of publishers. So for me, again, to answer your question, what excites me, it's the opportunity that it gives to entrepreneurs who are brave enough to, to really unlock the value of programmatic to create meaningful businesses. Um, it's for those on the buy side to get incremental reach into new audiences that maybe they weren't aware of previously via, you know, just direct singular URL site buyers. Um, and for those on the sales side, it's unlocked a huge amount of value and enabled, you know, many sites to, to survive, quite frankly, and also to, to remain free to everybody to consume. Yeah, I, I love that. I think I'm similar in that. I love the competition it can enable. Like it's not, you know, you don't get ad budgets just because you're have the biggest sales team or you're the biggest. It's like a it it can create a level playing field where if you're the best advertiser or the smartest, you'll buy the best. And if you're a smart yeah. seller, you'll smart sell the best. And if you're an intermediary that can add value in that ecosystem, you do really well. Absolutely. And, and that's what I love. It's like, just be good and programmatic will let you to be good. Of course, there's, there's, you know, challenges with that type of ecosystem, which I think we're sort of resolving through. But um, yeah, I, and I definitely think, you know, over that time, you've definitely been one of the more vocal in the industry and you know, you've sort of held sales roles. But the way that I've seen you approach sales, it hasn't really been like hard sell, like, ah, oh, I'll sell you this pen. A lot of it's yeah. been like education because a lot of it, as you say, it's not that long ago this sort of stuff yeah. started came came to the market. And so I think a lot of that, Wayne, because I've never held an adult adops role before. I've never worked in product or engineering. So programmatic and data driven advertising and Adam Martech really lends itself to people that understand the nuances of how all of the plumbing works. As a seller, I've never really had that training or experience. So again, all of the explainers that I try to pull together are through the optics of a commercial person or a marketing person now increasingly trying to navigate what is becoming a product first led marketing environment. That that's you know something that I do personally, just so I can understand the space. If I don't understand how the nuances of programmatic works, I always try and challenge myself and say, right, Paul. Let's do an explainer and let's push it out on LinkedIn because A, it means I have to go away and research it. If I can't write about it, then I say to myself, well, you don't truly understand it. So how, how do you expect to be able to talk about it and educate those on the buy and sell side about it? And chances are there are going to be lots of other people within your, your network that come from a similar background. You know, they haven't held adults roles before. They're not in a product or engineering org, but they're also saying, well, you know, I want to I want to remain relevant. You know, I want to continue to do my commercial role, but it's increasingly becoming difficult for me to have articulate conversations without pulling my sales engineer into every meeting that I'm having. So again, I, I'm trying to 
create that framework of educational insights through the optics of a seller or a marketeer that just hasn't come from a product background before. Right. And yeah, and I, I love that. I just don't think they necessarily they need to. The, you know, the, the, you don't have to understand how like APIs work or how cookie syncing or ID by matching or federated learning, whatever, any of that sort of stuff works. Yeah. You sort of need to know what is it, what's the value it delivers. And when you've been like sort of out there and, and selling, you know, um, places that you've worked, what are the barriers? Like when you sort of go into meeting room or lunch and learn, you bring in a, you bring in a Nando's, you know, some fried chicken, (laughs) peri peri, and you're going to go, Oh, I'm going to talk to you about X. N- Nando's, Nando's solves everything, right? On the plan instantly. <laughs> oh, God, I love a Nando's lunch and learn. Um, what, what's, what's the barriers? What sort of comes back sometimes when someone goes, Paul, I don't understand, or Paul, I'm not going to use this? Like, what what yeah, comes up? I, I think, you know, e- even from the early days, I say the early days, you know, 2011, 12, trying to sell programmatic, there was a... There, there was a reluctance um, due to a partial fear, um, you know, of engaging with bad actors. And fast forward to where we are today, I would say, you know, that sentiment is even more so on the buy side. You know, lots of brands read reports, you know, from the likes of the ANA, the recent report talking about huge amount of ad budget being siphoned off to made for advertising websites. Um, there are still lots, lots of concerns around opaque ad tech take. Um, there are still lots of concerns around bad actors um spoofing domains of inventory that those on the buy side think they're delivering their ads to um even though you know there are there are so much there there is so much innovation from you know measurement and optimization companies like IAS and others um there is still i guess a slight hesitant from some on the buy side to invest further because they need increased controls or transparency or they want better reassurances that you know what they're buying is actually what what they think they're buying so i would say some of the reluctance or some of the the hesitancies have been around um bad actors fraud undisclosed take again you know there are there are verification companies now that are doing a great job to bring the transparency and controls that those on the buy side need um Governing bodies like the IEB Tech Lab, the AOP, all doing a fantastic job to introduce increased protocols for those on the buy and, side, buy and sell side to follow to ensure that it's as hard as possible for bad actors to infiltrate the programmatic supply chain. Um, but it, it's not it's not just one one issue um, that each agency group faces. Some agency groups have clients that. Um, have you know different concerns from another holding co so i would say it's a case-by-case scenario it's not just agencies don't spend more in programmatic because of one reason um each will have different types of clients with different levels of susceptibility around what they deem to be quality media um others have a slightly deeper understanding around the programmatic supply chains so very much case-by-case scenario Wayne. yeah that's fair and i mean if I had to guess, I imagine when you were sort of first sort of out in the market selling in strike ads and then um unruly and others, you would largely be selling into agencies, right? Like the sort of digital trading right. teams, traders. Yeah. And then I imagine more recently advertising and brands are leaning in a bit more. Do you see the way that they respond to what you say differently? Like are there different barriers they put up or questions they ask or is it actually quite similar now? No, I think um, I think we've seen 
when I was selling to agencies, my experience was very much some agency groups um, really lent into programmatic a lot quicker than others. Um, we saw the evolution of certain trading desks, and then there were specialist areas around in-app for mobile. Uh, fast forward to where we are today, you've got departments that specialize in CTV. So again, I think it's just you know how some agency groups lean into these new environments. Um, that that that's I think the honest answer there. Not not everyone is created equally on the buy side. Some are really invested in teams that have either built their own proprietary technology solutions or they've employed people that have a deep domain understanding of the technology that they're licensing. Because you know that that intellect and that IP is really becoming a unique selling point for many of these holding codes where they're trying to offer differentiated value to their brands. Yeah, right. And then I, I definitely think in more recent times, like investment priorities around you know, reducing carbon emissions, like DEI investments, um, like thinking differently about investment as, as opposed to just, we have $1 billion, how can we get the CPMs down, the take rates down? Like there's a bit more responsible investment, I guess. And Absolutely. Well, and, and, it, and it's hard, right? I think, I think um, sometimes it's easy to criticize, um, you know, agency groups for for not doing enough but could you imagine how complex it must be to try and unpack the the digital inventory landscape all of the ad tech vendors in it um the new protocols it's you know it can't be an easy role to represent that many brands and make sure that they're extracting value at every point of their their execution chain so you know i I think sometimes they are unfairly criticized um because I know how difficult it is to understand this ecosystem. And I, I try to, you know, dedicate my the entirety of my working day to understanding what's happening on the buy and sell side, what's happening around new channels, what's happening from a you know CTV point of view. So it, it must be very difficult for those within agency groups that have a lot of other priorities as well, above and beyond just understanding the programmatic supply chain. Yeah, and then a hundred percent. I think one of the things that gets thrown around quite often is how programmatic it's like laden with acronyms you know dsp ssp whatever cdp <laughs> dmp and you know the reason acronyms exist in the industry is just because it's a quicker way to speak to somebody who also knows what the acronym means it's a shorthand really yeah but actually i know over the years um a lot of people complain about the amount of acronyms that are used and that probably does create some resistance and might seem daunting to others like it's a bit of a exclusive club really if you don't know what a dsp is then don't talk to me yeah. but how, how, do, how do you try and navigate that when you're sort of um talking to people it, it's a difficult one right i always try well I, i've always tried to pride myself on being able to explain something um again through the optics of a seller or a marketer that hasn't worked in programmatic before even though i do use a lot of acronyms um i think it's important right if you're a practitioner in digital marketing if you're an agency if you're a publisher responsible for yield i do think there is a certain element of making sure that your organization is training you appropriately i do think that you have a responsibility to yourself and your career to try and invest in understanding how the industry works um you know i I wouldn't go and work in the the medical profession um the the architecture um sorry the um yeah, you know, the, the building and engineering industry and not understand the terms that they use. So sometimes I think the digital advertising industry is unfairly criticized for the level of complexity because people assume it should be easy. Um, the industry is, is, 
has evolved and, and changed so much over the last 15 years. It's not the same industry that it was. Um, today, it's predominantly underpinned by data, um, technology, and increasingly artificial intelligence. So there's no escaping the fact that what we do is becoming more complex. It is becoming more complicated. So there is a need to really understand how each of the components work if you want to be able to, you know, fulfill your role effectively, be it on, you know, the buy or sell side, I think you owe it to yourself, your employer owes it to you. And I think there is no shortage of great resources now in the market and specialist companies, you know, like yourselves, Wayne, that can really educate sellers or marketers or agency executives around some of the complexities that are evolving. Um, so, so to answer your question, it can be complicated. It can be complex. Um, I think we should all try and explain things as simply as possible, but there's no escape in the fact now that our industry is underpinned by data, technology, increasing artificial intelligence, and it is becoming a lot more complicated than, than maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I, I was nodding aggressively to what you're <laughs> saying because it really frustrates me when people say we're making the industry complicated for the sake of it. It's like, I always think, well, it's like travel. Like back in the day, it was a horse and a cart. Pretty simple. Now, if you watch F1, I saw this speech by Jensen Button, and he said that while the teams he worked at, they did 104 iterations of the bolt that goes into screwing the wheel onto the car, right? To, to, to get out performance. Like that's where comp competitive advantage comes in those understanding the complexities and testing and learning. So, it really, really frustrates me when you see commentators go, let's go back to X. It's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's, let's just keep going forward, but like lean in more. And I'll just call, I won't call someone out, but like someone was complaining about programmatic supply chain when the ISBAR study came out. Yep. And I ran a training session. This was during the pandemic. Ran a training oh, session. Sorry, Wayne, just for the listeners, is this the one where they honor some undisclosed Someone yes. Like, yeah, cool. yeah. Sorry, I should have said, yeah, it's the PwC is by AOP. And I was like, what I do is I'll run a training session and I'll just explain the supply chain. And there was a small fee. It was like $50. It's like a two hour session. Yeah. And I invited this person. They didn't even bother turning up. It's like, <laughs> well, how can you throw shade at the industry when you can't even bother just to dial in for half an hour? Let alone yeah, the two hours. It's I, I, so frustrating. Yeah, I hear you. And this is this is something I've I've always said to um I've been involved in lots of roles where I've had to upskill and train sales teams. Um, you know, in the early days when you'd have a head of programmatic or a head of mobile, I know it doesn't really work like that anymore. But in those early roles, it's very much how can you upskill, you know, a bunch of sellers who 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 have historically sold via IOs around the nuances of PMPs, PG, you know, what ad exchanges are. And I would always try and send articles to these sellers and say, look, have a read of this, you know, lean into exchange wire, Digiday, Video Week, The Drum, all of the usual titles. And I was always amazed when nobody would ever, well, not nobody, but a large percent of people would always say, no, I haven't read it. No, I haven't. No, I, I don't. I don't know that website. I haven't done this. And but increasingly, they're always the people that say, oh, it's too many acronyms. It's too complicated. Yeah. I'm like, Hello. you've got to at least have some interest in the industry. Yeah, try, try. I think it's, yeah, it's an obligation of being employed. But, you know, uh, the, as you say, the great thing is there is lots of content out there and lots of opportunity to learn. Um, and as you say, the industry is definitely becoming more complicated. You know, as you said, like the increasing use of AI, and I was thinking, you know, from your perspective, like, what do you, what has been a complicated thing to explain in the last few years? Like, where have you gone? 
uh, this is something that is actually quite challenging to explain. It, okay, it, this was it's it's a good question, and it's one I was thinking about earlier, right, Wayne? Before we before we jumped on, so it's probably supply path optimization. Even though I've written several lengthy explainers on it again, because I was trying to get my own head around it. I find that when I think I truly understand SPO and I speak to either a you know a publisher or an agency or a brand, everybody I speak to has their own interpretation of what supply mm. path optimization means. And you know, up until about a year ago, I thought I genuinely cracked it. I could sit on a panel. I was very happy to take the SPO question. And then fast forward to where we are today, and you've got SSPs trying to get closer to agencies you've got dsps trying to get closer um to the publishers you've got you know carbon emissions now thrown into the mix as another major lever that can be pulled when it comes to spo it's not just necessarily about price or performance there are other variables to consider um so again i now find that a really complicated subject to talk about not not because i don't really understand what the overall output of that that project is it's just that it means so much to yeah. so people and if yeah. you have three or four people in a room you're gonna have a heated debate right around what spo is what it means what are the main levers who should be doing it who owns the data that you extract from it so so to answer that question i think that is the real one today that i would truly struggle to give an articulate answer around because you know it's going to mean something completely different to one holding co versus another holding co and it will mean something completely different for two different publishers as well yeah, uh, yeah, it's the thing that everyone should be doing, and that therefore means that everyone's got different perspectives and they don't always put in the same direction. So yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a good one. Um, and then kind of since you you know you obviously start well moved to Unanimous, then started at StrikeAd, you know there's been tons of innovation in the industry, yeah. like absolutely shitloads. What like this might be a bit of a weird question. <laughs> Like, what's your favorite one? Like, what's the thing you go, that's a very cool thing that's happened in the last, like, 15 years? Uh, there's a few of them. Um, I think when the market kind of innovated around transacting um, via deal type, so when programmatic guaranteed kind of really started to get traction, that was one that excited me because it was a it was a vehicle to enable more ad dollars to throw to flow through programmatic pipes but it also enabled publishers to start surfacing their direct sold through programmatic platforms and it really democratized uh, automated trading you know and it moved it away from that scenario of being my unsold or my remnant to you know what you know the majority of publishers tier one inventory is now being transacted in a programmatic way um outside of trading models i would say it's just the different types of formats that are now increasingly becoming available within programmatic environments. That's what really excites me. Um, if you look at where we are today, it's no longer just about digital video, mobile. We know a huge amount of um, investment is coming in around CTV. So bringing programmatic to television, but it's not just television, right? It's also audio channels. It's digital out of home channels. So that's what really excites me. It's how are we, how are we bring in positive disruption to digital environments that haven't historically been traded using data and technology, um, i.e. programmatic. Yeah, I'd like to just build on that a bit further, actually, because I think um, CTV is obviously your world now and the market is kind of moving forward. Um, but how, how do you think it is adapting to this sort of, I put inverted commas, new, yeah. but, you know, relatively new media opportunity? Yeah. And so what do you think is going well with it? But also on the same token, what's going poorly? 
Um, oh, good question. So for me, it's it's two sides of the same coin. If we look through the optics of a UK market where I'm based, um, you have broadcasters um, that increasingly now push a lot of content out via their broadcaster video on demand. So that's their BVOD offering. And if you're a traditional TV advertiser today, somebody that is dependent on TV measurement and biometrics, um, like Barb, for instance, then BVOD is probably the place that you're testing CTV. So, I mean, one of these big brands that have been, you know, spending a lot in traditional TV over the last 25 years, that's where they're now testing because they can get their ads into CTV environments, but they can still measure it. They can still quantify audience reach like they would have done their traditional TV ad buyers. Um, flip side of the same coin, you've got big TV OEMs, people like Samsung um, with very large fast channels. You've got AVOD services um, that are launching and getting a lot of traction in the UK. Companies like Roku, Rakuten, Vivo, um, but there's a whole bunch of them, right? And they're attracting a lot of interest from digital advertisers, social advertisers, people that have never historically advertised in traditional TV because they haven't had the budgets to get into those environments or they haven't had the TV type creatives that have been required of them. So we're seeing two different trends play out at the moment in the UK. We're seeing BVOD, um, which is a growing platform it's huge right if you look at the scale of bbod in the uk fantastic reach and they're attracting budgets from traditional tv advertisers then you've got your avod and fast environments that are attracting budgets from social and digital because they don't require the same types of measurement that traditional tv advertisers require they're leaning into tv but using data and programmatic technology to get value and find their audiences but those two sides of the same coin aren't really going to converge until everybody can collectively measure in a holistic way and quantify audience reach. Today, it's possible to get measurement information and audience targeting information in silos, in isolation. You might be able to understand what's happening across your BVOD, BVOD buyers, but you can't necessarily understand what's happening across BVOD, FAST, and AVOD. You have to do it in, in isolation. So that's still causing a lot of fragmentation for those on the buy side. So I think the evolution of data-driven TV advertising is growing and it's growing very, very quickly in, in the UK and across the globe. Data and programmatic technology has really democratized TV advertising for many brands. So for the first time ever, many, many brands are now able to get their ads onto the biggest screen in people's living rooms, and that's fantastic. So it's not necessarily about transitioning traditional TV budgets into CTV. It's about how do we collectively grow CTV in its entirety to bring new advertisers that have historically been absent from this marketplace. But again, I think the big battleground at the moment is, is how do we measure all of this? Um, do we continue to use panels because it's television or do we move to an impression-based model because it's fundamentally digital and delivered via the household IP? Um, personally, I think it's a combination of both, but there are many companies at the moment that are trying to innovate in that space to become the de facto currency and measurement protocol in, in television. But again, until, until the industry has really cracked that, I think those on the buy side, unfortunately, are still going to face a lot of fragmentation when they buy across all of these different touch points in CTV. Right, yeah, and I imagine... So the incumbents aren't necessarily incentivized to change. Um, so, you know, some of the traditional panel-based measurement companies probably maybe don't want to lean into digital and, and also do it vice versa, potentially. So uh, definitely, yeah, definitely interesting. And I love that point you make around 
democratizing access to advertising like tv advertising for any old brand like you know i could run an ad for the ad pod on tv yeah. how yeah. cool is that for I mean, like fantastic right yeah yeah for pretty low budgets and then i don't have to go and film you know a, <laughs> a car shoot in south africa of a, <laughs> the newest toyota or whatever yeah. um i could just you know knock it up in canva or something so yeah i mean uh, super interesting times and uh yeah so coming towards the end of the conversation um and it is i say this on every podcast but it is genuinely interesting at the moment like there's a lot going on yeah and the theme of the series this year is transformation because there's so much change yeah what do you think is the one way we'll see sort of ctv advertising transform in like the next uh, oh in the next sort of 18 months what are the big things uh big things um well i i think First of all, it's about enabling streaming services to create traditional like TV ad breaks. Um, this is going to sound like a publica plug. Um, I guess it is a little bit, but I think it's really important that streaming services, um, be it an AVOD app or a fast uh, channel, can provide advertisers with the basic controls that those advertisers have historically had in traditional TV ad breaks. And what I mean by that, Wayne, is understanding position within the ad pod. Is it the first slot? Is it the last slot? Understanding whether or not they're going to appear back to back with their competitors. Um, understanding things like frequency within the ad break. And up until recently, those those basic level of controls haven't really been available um, to those on the buy side. And that's one of the main reasons lots of these big traditional um, advertisers outside of measurement haven't been increasing their spending CTV because they haven't been able to me measure the basics such as frequency. So I think I think that needs to happen. It's happening quickly. More and more streaming services now are working with ad servers that have been built from the ground up to support all of these needs when it comes to streaming. Um, the IAB Tech Lab are doing a fantastic job of introducing new protocols such as OpenRTB 2.6 that really enable streaming services now to deconstruct their ad breaks and to sell airtime like traditional broadcasters have been doing. So again, it's really enabling those on the buy and sell sides to transact CTV ad pods like traditional TV ad breaks. Um, I also think that there is going to be a lot of talk over the next 12 to 24 months around discovery and when i say discovery i mean what ctv app stores look like so if we go back to the early days of mobile and you know my old strike had hat on again um if you look at the app ecosystems from android and safari they're very much in the evolution period users didn't really know how to search them you know there's a lot of confusion around what it meant to install an app how you engage with that app the frequency of how you should use it how it's tracked all of that is kind of playing out playing out now in the CTV space. If you look at the app stores, they're all pretty much in their infancy. Most TV consumers, or certainly the people that I speak to within my family, that's that's my sample size, they don't yet know how to navigate the app stores on their TVs. You know, they don't know how to go four or five pages deep. They're just engaging with the streaming services that have a presence on their remote controls. And I'm trying to say to them, look, there's a there's a bunch of other stuff that you can access. It's free, um, mm. but you need to navigate. I, so I think the TV manufacturers, as they increasingly become advertising businesses themselves, they have a vested interest in making those Avod and Fast services much more discoverable to all of us as TV audiences. So I think we're going to see a lot of really cool innovation around what search and discovery of streaming apps looks like on those televisions, whether or not it's done via your mobile, is it done via voice? Is it, you know, is it owned by the OEM operating system? I think all of this is going to play out and it's going to play out in a very positive way over the next several years. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, I know from my 
uh, experience a, a panel of one. Like if I want to watch a Manchester United game in the US, I mean, that must be my most common search is what channel is Man United on today in the US? Because because there's this land grab for content and it could be on a bunch of different streaming services um, or even just some linear stuff. I mean, it can be quite hard to find. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I love that solving for that will make the ctv experience just uh yeah much more positive absolutely awesome well thanks a lot paul for coming on the ad pod i really appreciate it oh thank you for having me wayne it's been a pleasure